uh, Thursday, November 2nd meeting of the Community Preservation Committee. My name is John Campbell. Um, I am going to ask our board members to introduce themselves as a means of roll call and also uh, tell what association you have with another board in town or whether you're a member at large. Uh, <coughs> and I'll start with Mr. Durkin at the end. Uh, Sean Durkin, I'm on the uh, Parks and Rec Commission and I'm also on the uh, Board of Directors of North Star Youth Hockey Forum. Millie Milton, I am representative from the Planning Board, and I'm also on Historic District Commission. Uh, Todd Helwig, Conservation Commission. John Campbell, Open Space Committee. Andrew Clark, uh, at large. Leslie Harrison, um, Historic. I'm, I'm sorry, Historic District Commission, but I'm also on the Open Space Committee. Jeff Leland, at large. Andy Dowd, Housing Authority, and I'm also the Town Clerk in Northbrook. Peter Martin at large. Thank you, everyone. Um, we have a guest tonight, Mr. Stuart Saginaw from the Community Preservation Coalition, Executive Director, I should say. We're very honored to have him. I'm not going to pause any longer. I'm going to give you the floor, Stuart. Right, thank you, John. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, so first, a little housekeeping. Okay, John, if we do this interactively and post ask Absolutely. questions along the way, I think it works works better yeah, that way. Very so. yeah. All right, great. Um, as John said, I'm Stuart Saginaw from the Community Preservation Coalition in Boston. It is um, wonderful to attend an in-person meeting mm -hmm. and not be sitting in Zoom. Um, you know, it's I drove a long way tonight, but I'm thrilled to be back. You know, meeting with CPCs and, and out on the road and not just. Um, you know, sitting in a basement somewhere looking at Zoom. So kudos to you for a lot of CPCs have not begun meeting yet. Um, so it took a lot, but we got here. <laughs> good, good, good. Kudos to you. So um, tonight I have a, an update presentation on CPA um, to give you kind of a bird's eye view of what's happening statewide, and then we'll kind of drill down a little bit to some of your issues. Um, I left a, some time at the end to talk about light clips because I know everyone has some questions about that. I prepared a did a little research uh, that was long overdue uh, to Lori and um, talking about uh, your options for that building and I'm happy to answer questions and kind of just talk it out a little bit um, if you're not all tired of talking. <laughs> so, um, can I just have a show of hands of anyone that's fairly new to the committee? Gives me a, an idea to know where to emphasize things. You know, pretty you experienced long-term Yeah, I was probably the newest member Obviously, served the town for a long time, but uh, we did not have a housing authority representative for many years. It was kind of a gap, and Andy joined. So, but um, everyone else has been on the committee for uh, all right. So I have plus a years. Couple of uh, in the middle, some basic slides, which I think I might just skip right by. Since That's fine. Uh, you can keep with your presentation. Yeah. Some in the audience and watching uh, like to see anything that's um, informational. So okay. Great. Don't, don't hesitate. All right. Super. All right, so let's begin. Um, as I mentioned, I'm from the Community Preservation Coalition. We are a nonprofit based in Boston, uh, but we're just really a combination of all these other nonprofits that work in the areas of CPA. Um, we were located until very recently at this organization and their offices um, and under their fiscal agency, and we have since brand new moved to an organization in Boston called Third Sector New England, which is a fiscal sponsor for smaller nonprofits like ourselves. Um, we are still renting offices from TPL because they're right next to the State House, and that's really mm -hmm. critical for us to be right down the street from the State House and keep an eye on what happens up there. Um, we have folks from these organizations that sit on our steering committee. We have eight people from local CPCs, like yourself, <coughs> um, who 
sit on our steering committee and some at-large members. So there's 21 folks who meet quarterly and kind of uh, guide the operation of the coalition. And um, the things we do, I think, for lack of a better term, are the things that most uh, municipal trade associations would do. Um, I think, um, John, you're from the CONSCOM, right? So you have MA, no, COSMO CONSCOM, MACC, the Massachusetts Association of CONSCOMs. There's a, a housing authority, you know, MassNARO. Everyone has an organization that does education and training and advocacy and all the things that you see on the screen. And we're that organization for community preservation committees. Um, unfortunately, there is no state agency for CPA. Um, all those other areas that have CPA have a state agency that kind of does regulations and questions and technical assistance. There's nothing for CPA. Um, you won't. You will only find one page on the state website with any information on CPA, and it's really basic. There's no one to call for information. There's no technical assistance available. There's no data collection at the state level except some rudimentary financial information. So people think we're a state agency all the time. We are not. We're a nonprofit, but we really fill the gap of the fact that the state never set up a, a CPA um, agency. Um, we uh, support ourselves by membership dues from CPA communities. So we're very pleased that Northboro is a member of the organization, um, and we're pleased that about 99% of the communities are um, and see the value in what we do. We also apply to grants to foundations the way other nonprofits would, and those partners also help us out financially as well. Uh, but the biggest part comes from the membership dues, so we appreciate it. Um, that's actually our, our uh, communications director, Chase uh, Mack. If any of you have ever used our website, which I'll show you in a minute, Chase spends a serious amount of time on that, making that a great resource for you. That's actually with his wife, and they were campaigning in, uh, in Milton. Um, on election day and holding signs and helping out the advocates uh, when they were trying to adopt CPA. This thing seems to be skipping on me, so sorry about that. Um, so I mentioned our website, communitypreservation.org. Hopefully all of you have um, seen that, and if not, um, I think you'll find it really helpful, particularly the members of the CPC. This, this tab that I circled right here, the technical assistance tab, that's really for you folks. Um, and it opens up this giant menu that looks very neat and organized, um, and it is, but behind that, is literally hundreds of articles um, on every topic you'd ever imagine of CPA. So feel free to peruse that and you'll, you'll learn a lot in your particular category and then if you don't find what you're looking for, you pick up the phone or shoot us an email and, and we're happy to, uh, to help you out with that. All right, so CPA has become really big. <laughs> um, bigger than any of us ever would have imagined when we started working on this back in uh, 2000 when Governor Salucci actually started in 1990 and took 10 years to get it passed and Governor Salucci signed it in 2000. Um, but we're now in more than half the cities in the state and because we've had a lot of cities adopt CPA um, in the past decade, the cities are kind of late to the party, but now that we have so many cities, actually three quarter, almost three quarters of the people that live in Massachusetts live in a CPA community because we've got in Boston and Springfield and Holyoke and Cambridge and Newton and a lot of the, well, pretty much all the large cities. Worcester just adopted last year, and their new CPC is just forming right now, and I'm probably gonna do their training in about a month. Um, and um, it's become a program that is, I think, headed for the entire state, because we don't see any slowdown in communities interested in CPA. It would not surprise me if there were 15 new communities on the ballot next year. Presidential election year is usually when it's pretty large in terms of adoption. I think we had 11 last time and we had 
2017, the presidential election before that. Um, we're seeing a ton of interest. Um, I just got a call this week from Marlboro, right down the road, that I drove through to get here, okay. um, uh, that with some interest in CPA. Um, they have a big mayoral, mayoral election, I think, coming up very shortly. Some of the candidates have been talking about CPA. It's become a little bit of a campaign issue to pin down the candidates as how they feel about CPA. So Marlboro, depending upon who wins that election, might be um, a community considering CPA in the future. This is my favorite statistic. Um, I don't know how long we'll be able to say that, but it's been 22 years, and no community has ever revoked the program. Every community that has adopted it has found it really useful um, for, for their quality of life. And we have only seen it hit the ballot three times to revoke it, and they all were defeated really handily. This is skipping terribly, sorry about that. Um, so this is the map of those CPA communities. The green are the towns, and the um, orange is the cities. Um, you'll see some that you are gonna be surprised are cities, because they're still called towns, like the town of Barnstable, and the uh, town of Bridgewater and the town of Agawam. We have a lot of um, uh, towns that actually have city councils and are a city form of government. So um, we still have a few of the large cities that haven't adopted, you know, Brockton, um, Lawrence, Lynn, uh, Lowell recently adopted. Uh, and like I said, Worcester is, is the most recent. Um, there's so many great stories in this map, but the one that I'll highlight is kind of where you are out here. You can see that Worcester County is really, um, has a dearth of, of CPA communities. And it's not for lack of um, elections or trying, it's been on the ballot out there a lot, um, out this way, but it, it doesn't seem to pass at nearly the clip it passes to the east and to the west mm. of, uh, of Worcester County. This area in here, I think I understand why. I mean, these communities are so tiny. The amount of money they would generate from CPA would be really tiny and the same four volunteers staff every committee in town. You know, mm. tough, tough to get a nine-member CPC. So I kind of get it there. It's a little puzzling here. I mean, I think maybe this tends to be a little bit more conservative part of the state is, is one reason, uh, possibly. But we have seen a lot of activity lately um, in this area. So we do have some brand new communities. Westboro just up the road. Um, West Boylston is also new within the past couple years. So it's starting to happen. Northbridge was like three or four years ago. Uh, so it's happening a little bit more out here. Lancaster was two years ago. Um, so it's definitely, you're gonna be surrounded pretty soon. Yeah, Leslie. Is it possible for some of those uh, smaller communities to band together in some, some way to? It's a great question. Um, the state really encourages regionalization. Um, that's actually a really good idea for an update to CPA. Um, I'm gonna talk about legislative stuff in a little bit, but we are really looking now the last kind of comprehensive overview of CPA was in 2012, where a lot of changes were made. That's where the recreation piece came in, we allowing you to do recreation and some other changes. Um, in January of, of 2025, the new legislative session, we want to kind of file another package of amendments, and that's a really interesting idea, um, to find some regionalization opportunities for CPA. Um, that's, that's a great idea. Thank you for that. Um, all right, so um, any way you look at CPA, whether you look at that map or you look at these statistics that are on the screen, it's been a, a, just a huge success. Um, these, you'll be the last group to ever see these stats. Chase just finished the new stats through the end of FY23, and tomorrow we're gonna put them up on our website and I'm gonna adjust this slide, but 
So these are over a year old now at this point because the state only updates it once a year. Um, but this is the figure that's incredible. Would anyone have ever thought that 3.1, now probably about 3.3 billion dollars has been spent and raised for CPA. It generates anywhere from 250 to 270 million dollars a year statewide for, for CPA, which is an, not an insignificant amount of money um, to be split just across these four restricted um, categories. Um, historic preservation is definitely the most popular category, um, over 6,500 appropriations there. Not money-wise, because the projects tend to be a little smaller you guys would definitely probably, with Whitecliffs, maybe raise the <laughs> statewide <laughs> average right up there on historic projects. But um, uh, the money actually rolls up pretty evenly um, in the different categories. But, but in terms of numbers of appropriations, historic is the most popular. Um, we're definitely over 35,000 acres um, at the end of FY23 with these new stats for open space. This is clearly the hottest category of CPA because of that 2012 amendment that expanded the uses in that category, made it a lot easier for communities to rehabilitate their existing parks, playgrounds, and athletic fields. There were only 500 projects that had ever been funded between 2000 and 2012. Mm -hmm. And now look at the number just since 2012. So this is the most difficult category of CPA. Housing is expensive and politically charged and takes forever, um, but still 26,000 units have received some type of help from CPA. We'll dig into these categories a little bit more um, as the presentation goes on. So um, most of you might know this, but I think people always are surprised to find out a few details of the, of the money piece of CPA. So there's really two main revenue sources. Um, your local surcharge revenue, you guys have a one and a half percent surcharge. Um, we have um, about 70 communities or so that have a full three percent sur surcharge. And then the rest are, you know, half a percent on one and a half. Um, Harvard had a 1.1% surcharge. I have no idea why, but they just raised that to 3% after 20 years, actually. Um, so that's your local money. Yes? Sorry, another quick question. Yeah. Do you find that, uh, do many communities change once they start? Do they end up adjusting? We've, we've had probably a dozen, give or take, that have raised and lowered. Okay. We've had communities raise, then lower, lower, then raise. We, so there's some people have done it more than once. Um, Amber started out at half a percent, then went to one percent, then I think went to one and a half, and then three. <laughs> um, so yes, it's one of the benefits of the program. You can change your surcharge at any time. I will tell you that three, the days of three percent are long gone. We haven't seen more than two or three communities adopt at three percent in the past decade. Mm -hmm. One and a half percent is the, I call it the Goldilocks percentage. You know, it's not too high, it's not too low, it's right in the middle. And when you look at the stats of the success ratio of people, communities at the ballot on one and a half percent, one and a half percent passes like 82% of the time. And all the other ones, so half, one percent, one, uh, two percent, three percent, are in like the 59 to 60% ratio. It's, it's bizarre. I don't know if I can clearly explain it, except for the Goldilocks effect of one and a half percent. But when communities are kind of struggling, you know, on their surcharge and they're in that range and they're new, we always, you know, cite that stat and say, give us, give us a shot at one and a half because it seems to pass um, 
kind of worked here too. So um, the other piece of your revenue is this, the, really what I call the magic of CPA, which is the trust fund money that comes in. Um, you know, I, I'm not so sure that we'd have any of the 195 communities if there wasn't this matching money. I mean, that's really the, the big benefit of CPA. But there's some storm clouds on the horizon there, which I'm going to get into in, in, in a second. Um, your fund also earns interest. I hope, I hope your fund earns interest. It's statutorily required that the town track how much interest is attributed to your fund and then pays it out um, to you. Usually once a year when they close the books, they transfer that interest. That never used to amount to much, but I'm starting to see it add up now in this, in this interest rate environment. So good thing to, to check and make sure. I did find a few communities. Um, I think Southboro was one of them. Um, that that has kind of slipped between the cracks and they weren't getting their interest. Um, uh, and there's no way to get it in the rears, you know. So it's a good thing to check your um, annual financial reports and make sure that that is being distributed to, to your fund every year. So let's dig into these two um, funding sources and particularly the, the, the um, trust fund money. So believe it or not, the trust fund money primarily does not come from the state budget. Most people think it would just be a state budget item, but it's not. Um, it's much better than that for us. Um, it's a fee assessed on documents filed at the state's registries of deeds. And it was a new fee added in 2000 specifically for CPA. So every time you go to the registry and you're filing um, a mortgage, a mortgage discharge, uh, an orders of condition for the CONSCOM, any paper you file at the registry, there's a chart at the window and it says, Here's how much you're going to pay to the state to record that document. $50 of every one of those documents goes to the CPA trust fund. Municipal lien certificates are $25, but all the other documents are $50. So, uh, and then the rest of the money usually goes to the, um, to the state, to the general fund. Um, this is a funding source that any other program would love to have. Um, it is not subject to appropriation by the legislature. They can't do anything with the money. It's a true trust fund. It goes from the window at the registry to a bank account at DOR marked CPA trust fund. And statutorily, the only thing that can happen with that money is it comes out as a check to you folks in about 10 days' time. Um, we're waiting right now on the, on the match uh, by November 15th for this, uh, for this past year. So it's a terrific funding source. Um, Unfortunately, as the map has grown with green and orange on it, um, and the real estate market has gone like this, you know, the match really slid dramatically. Um, and so in about 2009, we started talking with the legislature about raising that fee. This used to be $20 and $10. That was the fee up until 2019. It took us from 2007 to 2019 to get that bill passed at the legislature to, to provide uh, an increase in the deeds recording fee. But um, the legislature really does like CPA. Most legislators have CPA in their district. It gets tremendous support up there. So what they started doing is saying, look, we can't do that right now, um, but we will start giving money to the trust fund from the state's annual budget surplus if, if it's available. And that's added up to about $118 million over the past decade. Um, I think we've gotten it nine out of 11 years, eight or nine out of 11 years, we've gotten money from the, from the state budget surplus. Um, so it's, a, it's another wonderful funding source. Um, the, the registry of deeds money 
is guaranteed, this is something that we have to advocate for every year. And that's what our organization does, starting in the takes from the spring until now, to work on this and see if we get it. Last year, you guys got $203,000 in the November distribution, and then you got a decent, decent check, um, which was a 38.5% match from um, the uh, surplus funding. Um, it actually came in, in two pieces, because the surplus was done separately from the regular match. When we talk about percentage matches with CPA, when we say 38.5%, what we mean is 38.5% of what you folks collected locally. So this figure is 38.5% of that figure. Um, and that's the same for every community in the state on the first round of the trust fund. Last year, everyone got 38.5% of what they raised locally. So yours was 55,000. Gosnold got about 400 bucks on their $3,000 of total revenue. And Boston got, you know, I don't know how many million um, on their 25 million of revenue. Yes, sir. How is that 38% uh, varied over the years? Great question. Um, for the first six years of CPA, when did you pass? Um, 04 election. Yeah, I was going to say it's so before my time. 05 town meeting. Okay. Me. So, so your first two or three years, or maybe four, you had a 100% match. The first six years of CPA, it was 100%. And that's because um, the communities that adopted were mostly smaller like Northboro or even my community. I live up in Boxford on the North Shore. We adopted in 2001, um, and I was chair of my CPC for five years. I joined the coalition in 2006. But those were the typical types of communities early on, and the real estate market was going crazy. That's when interest rates were falling, and you'd see people refinance in January. The rates would fall 2%. They'd refinance in May, and then you'd refinance again in, in November on the same property. And all those was like ka-ching, ka-ching for the trust fund. Um, and there was more than enough money. There was a big surplus every year, so it was able to pay out 100%. But once that caught up and the real estate market started to slide and the word got out about CPA, it had reversed. And it got down to, um, if we hadn't gotten any surplus money, we would have been at 11% in 2019. So we just got that bill passed to raise the fee in the nick of time. It was about to fall into the single digits. Um, so, you know, you can see it's rebounded now back up to 38. It was 46, I think, the year before that. Um, the first year we got that big infusion of money from the, from the increase. So it, it varies pretty widely. Um, but it's a very timely question because I, I don't have great news for you. I'm so sorry about this clicker. It's time for a new one. Um, I don't have great news about this year's match. Um, the trust fund is down 30% year to date. You all know what's happening in the real estate market. There's no volume. We, we make our money on volume. It's not a percentage of the purchase price. If we got a percentage of the purchase price, you know, when I started in 2006, the average home in Massachusetts was around 300,000, and now it's, I don't know, 575, 600, something like that. Um, that would be great, but we just get a flat fee, $50. So, um, it's been dramatically reduced by the, by the slowdown in, in the real estate market. And also the refinancings. Um, for a long time, all the refinancings were generating a decent revenue for the trust fund. No one is refinancing now. There's, you know, no one's giving up their 2.9% um, you know, mortgage to refinance at 8%. So um, DOR projected a 20% match in November. Um, uh, we, we we're tracking it all summer. We felt the 20% was about 
about the right guess, and DOR confirmed that in, in September. We are still advocating for you know, some money from the surplus, um, but it's not looking good. We actually had it in the spring in the Senate budget. They allocated $30 million for the trust fund, which would have been the highest so far. And that would have got us pretty darn close to last year's number. Um, so that would have made the difference between the 20% and the 38% from last year. Um, the Senate gave it to us in their version of the budget, but if you know how legislative things work, they then go into what's called a conference committee where the House and Senate reconcile their differences. They, um, unlike you folks who have to have a public meeting and are having a public meeting right now, um, the state exempts itself from the public meeting law. So the first thing that every conference committee does is they vote to close their meetings to the public. Um, so we don't know what happened behind those closed doors, but when the final conference committee budget came out in July, the CPA line item was, was removed. So um, we're still working on it. They always do a supplemental budget at the um, end of the fiscal year. Um, and that still has not been released from House Ways and Means, so we just sent another letter today to House and Senate Ways and Means uh, trying to advocate and, and showing them these, you know, these numbers, and we sent a big chart showing monthly the huge decline. Um, it's, you know, it's off by $18 million and change. Um, so it's a big decline. Um, I'm not that optimistic, though. I know that the state budget surplus is really um, in tough shape this year. So, and they have a lot of other expenses on the um, emergency shelter for, for migrants, and they're really struggling right now to figure things out. So that supplemental budget should have been out. It was due by October 31st, um, but they're typically, um, you know, really take some time to figure that out. So we're still advocating. At this point, it will not be in your, in your check. Um, you're just going to get money from the trust fund on November 15th. If we are successful in getting some surplus money, it would be like last year. You'd get a second check maybe in December. Um, last year it came out in December, the second check. The year before, we got $10 million, I think, and it came out in uh, January. Last year we got $20 million, um, from the surplus, so it was really, really terrific. Any questions on the, the trust fund? Yes? Is, is there any chance of getting it included as a regular annual budget item? Interesting you should say that. So in 2012, um, as an annual regular budget item, no. The, the legislature never puts anything in the budget that is more than one year. They, they never want to bind themselves. It's kind of the same way your town works. Your town can't really bind itself except for a bond. You can't really bind future town meetings in terms of what they're allocating for the budget. So as a regular budget item, no. But um, in 2012, when we got the big piece of policy legislation passed, we also had asked for that fee, fee increase. And they said, we can't give it to you, but we're going to start giving you the first $25 million of the budget surplus every year. And so the bill was written when it went into that closed conference committee as you know, in every fiscal year, the first $25 million of the state's budget surplus shall go to the CPA trust fund. When it came out at 3 a.m. in the middle of the night um, from the conference committee, instead of saying at the end of every fiscal year, it said in FY13, mm. the first $25 million. So we got $25 million that one year, 
but now we have to go back every single year and advocate for it. So they usually do not want to dedicate anything. They usually want to give themselves flexibility because, you know, to be in all fairness, things do change, right? And other priorities happen and they don't want to be locked into a lot of promises. Um, so great question though. Um, that was a, one of the worst nights of my life, frankly. I was out doing a presentation in Peter Sam and the cell service and the internet service was terrible and someone called me and said, the budget is, is out, it came out of conference committee and I'm on some weak Wi-Fi trying mm -hmm. to read this 5,000 line budget and I get to the point instead of saying, you know, in every fiscal year, the first 25 million, it says in FY13. So you win some and you lose some, but um, it still has added up to $108 million um, over the past uh, uh, decade or so, so. All right, so um, John, I'll go through these slides a little quicker because these are sort of the basic um, CPA slides in case anyone was new. Um, you know, some of the things that the CPC is responsible for, I'm, I'm assuming you have a public hearing every year that's required by the law. Um, I sometimes see communities that have had CPA for a long time have sort of missed the step of having a CPA plan, um, but it is required that every community have a CPA plan uh, and update that every year. It doesn't have to be, you know, it's not a master plan type material and it doesn't have to be completely rewritten, but you do have to provide a light update to that plan every year. If you list your projects in the plan, you would list the, you know, the next years. If you list your committee members, you would change that. But um, that's something that you're required to do. Um, this is a, a best practice, you know, hopefully you guys are getting regular financial reports from the town as to what's in your accounts. Um, you know, it's good to keep on top of that. You know, um, mistakes are made. Um, Hopkinton had to hire a forensic accounting firm to figure out their CPA accounts because um, they had a, a bunch of changes in the finance department and there wasn't any consistency there. And seeing a lot of turnover actually. I don't know if your town has had a lot of turnover. You have. Yeah. Single, an amazing amount of turnover among um, municipal officials right now. Um, really, really tough time to uh, have any consistency in, in staffing. So um, it's important to keep on top of that. And then these are the main reasons you exist, right? To prepare a budget every year and recommend that, and then to recommend projects every year. By the way, I forgot to mention, these little numbers in the corner here, these we call bookmarks. Tomorrow morning, you're all gonna get a copy of this presentation by email, send it to all of you. Um, and um, those bookmarks have links on our website for more information. So any page that has a bookmark, you'll be able to click on the link in my email tomorrow morning and get more information. All right, so the one great thing about CPA is it doesn't stipulate um, a lot of requirements. It really lets you guys decide how you wanna spend your money. I think that is the strongest part of CPA is the local control. The state even says when that check comes from the state, as soon as it hits your account and is deposited, it's considered local money. There's no approvals required from the state. That's a terrific thing to have complete flexibility on that, on that funding. The only rule it does say is that every year you have to spend or reserve for later spending 10% in each of the three categories, um, housing, open space and rec and historic. Open space and recreation share a reserve account. By open space, we mean conservation land activities. And by recreation, it would be active outdoor recreation, parks, playgrounds, athletic fields, and things like that. By the way, Stuart, could I interrupt? I just want to be certain that I understand that because it yep. did change. Um, the 10% minimum can apply to either open space or recreation. Correct. And you meet it. Okay. Yeah, and that was one of the changes in 2012. Before 2012, 
Recreation had no reserve account. Right. And this could only be spent on conservation land purchases, um, mostly. There are a few other things you can do. There's not much you can do in the conservation category other than protect conservation land. And it was actually the cities who requested, you know, our best ideas come from Wesley and other people. The city said, hey, we don't have any conservation land to buy in Cambridge, you know, and we, we built up that fund, you know, to a million and a half dollars. What are we gonna spend that on? And so it was really the cities who requested that that be opened up and you can use it for, for either, you can split it, you can do rec this year, the next four years, and then do a conservation. Thanks for clarifying. Completely flexible. Um, and then, of course, you can always set aside up to 5% for administration, which I know you do as well. All right, um, that administrative account, folks always have questions on that. Um, it's um, um, difficult to parse out. There's no you know, regulation from DOR on what can be in the administrative account. Um, but typically, um, the type of things that CPCs are, you know, staff support, um, any any, as you're doing your due diligence on a project, I just got a question today from, forget what community it was, it, uh, Falmouth. <laughs> they said, we have a really complicated historic application in front of us and we really want to hire a historic preservation consultant to make sure they're doing the work according to the Secretary of Interior standards, which is required for CPA. Can we use our admin fund for that? And I said, that's exactly what the admin fund is for. Um, and so any assistance that you need in doing your due diligence on projects uh, and project recommendations is fair game. You know, if you have your ad for the public hearing, that sort of thing. Um, it is not for project expenses. And that's a mistake that a lot of folks make. And there might have been some mistakes here in the past, too, with White Cliffs in terms of some things being paid for out of the administrative fund. I mean, you know, there's no CPA police. Mistakes are made. But um, it is not for a uh, common question we get is, you know, they bid the project, there was $100,000, all the bids came in at 120. Can we take the balance out of the administrative fund? And the answer to that is no. It's, it's not a project expense budget. It's an expense budget of your committee, the expenses to run your committee. Yeah, Lori. Um, white clips. Yeah. So could you use the administration funds to hire an architect to prepare a plan for like demolition of additions. Um, so that would support a future application, which would be the actual demolition of um, you know the additions that are not historically relevant. Right. Um, but it is design work. So yeah, it, that's a tough one. Um, okay. And I don't think there really is a clear answer to that question. Um, you know, it really would be a local decision by the CPC. Um, I think we, um, it, the, one of the ways that we tell whether something is a true administrative expense of this committee is where did the request come from to do that? If the request came from anyone but this committee, it's probably not a good expense for the administrative account. Um, you don't accept applications to use the administrative account. Like the Historic Commission, the Selectmen, the Planning Department can apply, cannot apply to use the administrative account. They apply for project funds. Okay. But if one of the committee members, you know, if they, if they had a, you know, a different White Cliffs application in front of them and they said, well, gee, before we do this, we really should have a study, you know, of this, 
that would be a little different. It's a nuance, but it would be an initiative of the committee at that point. So that's one of the ways to tell is who's asking for the work to be done, right? If it's coming from somewhere else, not the best use of administrative funds. But, you know, CPA is a, is a local program. Um, and, um, you know, there's politics involved in everything. And, you know, a request like that, having to go through town meeting, you know, as a project expense, a small amount of money, and might generate, you know, all sorts of politics around that. So it's a tough one. I wish I had a clearer answer, but hopefully I kind of gave you some guidance to be able to, to figure that out. All right. Um, so now let's talk about the um, actual spending of the money, which is the last big section I have for you, and, and we'll talk about white clips too in more detail. Um, CPA actually doesn't say anything about the application process. It actually starts at the point where it says, the CPC shall make recommendations to the legislative body for, and then it lists all the things you can spend money on. Um, so anything to do with the application process is really up to you folks on the CPC. Um, you have complete local control. But there's some best practices and patterns that have come out from that in terms of, first, who can apply for CPA funds? Um, you know, these are the two big categories, um, you know, the town itself and town departments and local nonprofits. Um, those are really the two categories. I don't think the legislature really thought this was gonna be part of CPA. I don't think they really thought it through because these type of applications are difficult um, because there's the whole idea of spending public money on private assets and how do you guarantee public benefit. Um, they're a big use of CPA funds, but they deserve a little bit more scrutiny. Um, and there's no guidance in the CPA. So I think the legislature, when they created it you know, 25 years ago, was really thinking about this just being a fund for town assets. But we've turned it into so much more, which is fine. It doesn't say anything about that in the, in the legislation. Um, Again, because there's no yes or no, these are not yes and no. You know, these are, you know, pretty basic, and you got to look really close in terms of the list. So, the first caution is non-incorporated entities. Um, you see that sometimes the friends of the Prescott Park, you know, but they're just a loose organization of friends groups. You see that more in cities. There's neighborhood groups all over cities that often are not incorporated entities that apply for CPA funding. Um, we see folks um, sometimes who have historic homes who apply for, you know, individual grants. Um, you know, that you, it doesn't say you can't do that, but you really want to be debating Mrs. Johnson's, you know, 1810, you know, house on Main Street at town meeting, on town meeting floor. Maybe some people don't like Mrs. Johnson. Mm -hmm. um, so the way to do this sort of thing um, is to create a program for historic, let's say, facade improvements in historic districts or, or whatever you wanted to put as a limit on it, and then find an agency to administer that program, and then you give a pot of money, you know, as a, as a grant, and then that agency accepts the applications and does all that. It's not for the faint of heart. You need a really sophisticated professional staff to do it. The only two that I've seen um, have been uh, Cambridge and Springfield who have done these, these type of programs, and they both have, you know, paid historic commissions. Cambridge has like seven or eight people in their historic commission, paid members, and they've been doing it for years with uh, CDGV money. Um, privately owned um, historic buildings, um, particularly commercial and religious ones, not nonprofits. Um, we're starting to see a lot more commercial properties in historic districts apply for funding. Um, and 
know, if it's exterior funding on the facade and it contributes to the character of the historic district and, you know, it's definitely to the public's benefit to have, you know, a beautiful historic building and not have dilapidated exteriors there. So, you know, it would take um, definitely some structure and make sure it was done properly. Um, but we are seeing, you know, a few more. Again, more in, in, in cities that have big professional staffs. Fall River does that sort of thing. Lowell has a great uh, downtown um, historic building facade improvement program um, that they administer. Uh, so we're seeing a little bit more in that area. Um, religious institutions are tough. Um, we never really thought it they were tough. There were hundreds of projects that gave money to historic uh, religious buildings because they usually are the very fabric of you know, New England communities. Uh, but then the town of Acton was famously sued a decade ago, and since then it's um, it's been a difficult category because the lawsuit went to the SJC and the decision was clear as mud. So it's made it difficult. What have you folks done with? with um, have you received any applications from religious organizations? Yes. Mm -hmm. And what have you what have you done with those? Uh, approved some, um, primarily at uh, one major. Church in town, which is um, you know quite an historic site in our historic district. Yep. Uh, but we've you know we've been looking closely at the question with respect to the what it, it just came up a year or two ago. We started studying it a little closer with regard to that acting decision. Yeah. Um, More communities than I thought have proceeded to give continue giving grants. I, I thought this would and the lawyer for Acton really you know, said to the SJC, it's gonna have a chilling effect on historic preservation of, of these buildings. Um, but uh, I have seen a lot more communities do what you folks are doing than communities. North Andover, I know, does not do them um, because their town council um, uh, opined against it, but I've seen more activity than I thought I would continue in that area. Um, I think the shoe is gonna drop, you know, on the other foot or whatever that expression is at some point, we actually, kind of need another lawsuit to iron this out and, and get us you know, clarity in one direction or another because it really was left unfinished, um, unfortunately. Yeah, Mark. Stuart, the way I, you know, when I was on the commission and, and the uh, requests were coming in from the Unitarian Church, the way I was understanding the lawsuit was if it was exterior and it was improving something that was visible to the whole community, it was probably acceptable. But if you're doing something inside, into the, into the building, then, which is really focused on the church community itself, that that would be clearly unacceptable. Right. So that's kind of where the logic we were using when we got these requests uh, into the historic district commission. So, and I think most folks use that logic. Um, the part that I think is rock solid is the absence of, of spending public money on the interiors. I think that's a really generally accepted practice. Um, but even on the exterior, um, you know, the act act and lawsuit was all about. If we spend money on this exterior, it's going to take away from our religious mission activities. And so basically you have public money funding religious mission activities. So even though it's exterior and it's clearly to the benefit of the community, that was the issue that the SJC flagged. So our, our best practice advice is to, when you get the application, send them to town council and don't try to muddle through them yourselves. And the court referred to something called the Helms test, H-E-L-M-E-S, which is a three-part test to determine whether the benefit is for the public benefit or for the private benefit of the organization. 
it's a very complicated, obscure test. Um, and the best thing is just to send the application to town council and say, please step through the Helms test on this application and tell us whether we can fund it. And then if it's eligible, then you folks can have a discussion as to whether you want to do it. Doesn't mean you have to do it, but um, that's, that seems to be the best practice. So, Todd, is your, is your firm fielding applications from, uh, from Most CPCs? Most of our towns are in that white region that you mentioned previously that have yeah. not adopted it yeah. <clears throat> for some bizarre reason. But I was wondering, though, since KP law probably represents half of the communities, yep. I assume they're in, in us. The answer is pretty consistent from them as to what you can do. They wouldn't have a blanket. I would think that it, the law firm is giving consistent advice to all of its communities. You might not know. You may or may not know that. You may think that. Oh, all right. Well, uh, yeah. uh, um, you know, we see KP decisions from all sorts of different towns. You know, and they have. I don't know what, 100 lawyers or 50 lawyers, whatever. And I clearly have seen from KP a town that has CPA that bought land and their town, town council said, you can have this vote be a majority vote at town meeting. And then another KP lawyer said, nope, all land purchases are two thirds vote. Could someone explain KP to um, the guy? It's, a, it's, a, it's the largest municipal law firm in Massachusetts. Um, used to be called Copeland and Page, now it's just KP Law. Yeah, and they represent you folks? Yes. Yeah, in my town too, they do, they do my town as well. So in general, I think, yes, they, they have, you know, uh, principles, but you're really not, your town council is really not KP law, it's the individual who's assigned, that is your town council, it's that person's name. Um, and they do have different, their lawyers, right? They, do lawyers have different opinions sometimes? Or? They do, but I'd like to think they'd have a consistent right. voice on that subject. Yeah. And, I don't, and they may on the religious one. I haven't seen many of their opinions on it. We don't typically see the, the legal opinions. Forgive me for asking you to backtrack a little bit, but maybe for the benefit of the public and anybody watching, can you summarize quickly what the lawsuit was about in Acton, how it, how it affected CPA? Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, Acton um, received two applications from two different churches in town. One was for a, a master plan to look at the whole building and see what it needed. Uh, the other one was for some stained glass window repairs, right. um, stained glass that had religious imagery. Um, there's a couple of national organizations that um, fight for separation <laughs> of church and state. Um, uh, Freedom from Religion Foundation and um, I forget the name of the other organization, but that's the one that sued. Um, now they didn't have any standing to sue, this, this organization from DC, but they found 10 local taxpayers who were members of their organization, and they sued Acton, and they said, we feel this application, um, these two applications are in violation of um, the state's anti-aid amendment. So the lawsuit was about the state's anti-aid amendment. We have an amendment to our state's constitution it's from the 1800s um, that is still on the books. And it says you cannot give public money to a private organization, particularly a private religious organization. It says it in black and white. And it was actually done by a group called the No Name Party at the time. And they were trying to keep funding from going to um, private Irish Catholic institutions because that's when the Irish were coming over. And folks who were here, you know, 
wanted to restrict their activities, and they passed the anti-aid amendment saying you couldn't fund religious schools, and it was really, they were really aiming it at um, Irish Catholic schools. But we still have this law on the books. Now, it's been interpreted through the court a few places to say it's not an outright ban on public money to private organizations. It's a ban on public money going to private organizations for private purposes. But you can give public money to the private organization if it fulfills a public purpose. So that's the court rulings that have happened on the anti-aid amendment in the 150 years it's been around. So that's what the uh, organization and the 10 taxpayers in, in Acton were suing on. Um, what's ironic is at the same time, there was a federal case on the federal constitution, on the anti-establishment clause, the separation of church and <coughs> federally. And in that case, the federal um, Supreme Court went to the opposite direction of what the Massachusetts Supreme Court did. They basically said, you can't deny a religious organization applications for this public funding program. It was a park program, uh, a school playground program, and private religious schools were applying. And the state said, no, it's only for public schools. And the, the Supreme Court said, no, you can't discriminate against these organizations for religious reasons. So they have to be eligible for the program as well, which kind of makes sense. And that decision came out at the exact same time that the SJC came, decision came out here in Massachusetts. But our lawsuit was on the anti-aid amendment to our constitution, which is much more strict than the federal one. Um, and the decision was really muddy, but in essence, they, the court did say definitely not to the um, stained glass with the religious imagery. And they remanded the other applications back to the lower court to sort through um, this three-part Helms test. And they said, we're sending this back to the Superior Court. You need to sort through the three-part Helms <coughs> test and make a decision on the other applications. At that point, Acton had spent $250,000 to defend themselves. The grants totaled $80,000. Um, and the church probably had spent both churches. They both with, withdrew their applications at that point. So the case was never finished. So that's why it's a little muddy right now. So we know for sure one thing is not okay, stained glass religious imagery. Um, but the court seemed to have cast doubt that the other things were okay as well. Um, but there was no clear decision. Well, we have an application, we had an application last year that was a, for, you know, windows and cupola and, and steeple repair which is for the private benefit of the structure because it was water was it was based upon water penetration and the thing mm -hmm. uh, I guess visually it is a public space because it's a visual component of the towns of the our historic zone right but it also is private benefit because it's only benefiting the people of the you know, it's only benefiting the church people from a structure, you know, saving them money for their, from, from rebuilding the, the thing. Yeah, and that's what the SJC focused on, is one of the, you know, we always wonder why did they sue Acton? Because they sent a public records request to every CPA community asking for copies of their church projects. Um, you, you folks, I'm sure, received a, um, a public records request on that. 
yet they sued Acton. We were, we were joking in the office, well, they just, you know, there were hundreds of these projects, so they just went to the A and they sued Acton. <laughs> but they didn't. They sued for a very particular reason. They sued because they thought they had a case on the stained glass religious imagery, and they sued because one of the applicants, one of the churches, said, if we spend money on this exterior, it takes away from our religious mission. They said that in the application. And the SJC and the, and the, um, uh, the people who filed the case were all over that. I mean, they circled that phrase right there, and they said, this is the crux of the issue, is that you know, if they have to spend the money on this repair, it's gonna take away from the religious mission, and should the town public money be funding that religious mission? In essence, that's what they're doing at that point. So, but on the other side, if it's visible from the street, and you know, it's you know, the picture-perfect New England postcard with the <coughs> steeple and the New England church that defines the character of you know hundreds of our towns. You know, having that looking great is to the public benefit too. So it's a tough issue. All right. So we digress, huh? Um, Sorry about that, keep going, thank you. Okay, no problem. Um, so uh, just a few slides left. Um, anyone seen this chart before? Mm -hmm. This is the definitely the most important piece of paper in the CPA world. It's a CPA eligible, allowable uses chart. Um, this is a simple version. We have the official DOR version on our website. The only difference is the DOR version has all the definitions of these words uh, in small print on the side. Um, this basically is the essence of how you make a decision on a CPA project. Um, this is the visual representation of Section 5B2 of the law, which is this long, complicated thing that only Todd and other lawyers would enjoy that says what you can spend your money on. And I'll be honest, until this chart came out from DOR in 2005, none of us were quite sure what we could spend CPA money on. Um, but then DOR came out with this, and it was like, you know, like a picture's worth a thousand words, right? Um, it still doesn't make it easy. Allowable uses is the hardest thing. It's probably 80% of the technical assistance questions we get is can we spend money on this? Um, so here's how you use this chart. I mean, this is obvious, right? We all know the four categories of CPA. Um, but these have definitions and not everything in, in the entire category applies to CPA funding. What folks don't realize is you also have to justify a project by one of these verbs. So if you are not acquiring something, creating it, preserving it, supporting it, or rehabilitating it, it's not eligible for funding. And you can see not every verb is available in every category. Some are yes, some are no, and some are no, but maybe. <laughs> so um, you, know, you have to basically look at every application, and this is why it's critical to get a budget with every application, you really, to do this right, you need to review every line item in a budget and find a box on this chart where you can stuff that line item. You know, say yes, that line item to pay Mr. Johnson for his farm and acquire his conservation land, that is acquisition of open space. It's in this box, I see a yes, I can do it. Um, and sometimes you need a couple boxes for the different line items in a project. You know, if you were rehabbing a historic building uh, into housing, you know, you might have, you know, a couple of boxes that you need. But if you can't find a box that says yes, the project is not eligible for funding. So I'll give you a real life example. Let's say you get an application to fund an oral history of World War II veterans from the Historical Society or the Historical Commission. There's only 
12 World War II veterans left in Northboro. They want to capture their stories, hire a professional video company, interview them, get their stories. Um, obviously important to the history of the town, make a video, put it on the local cable channel, distribute it to the schools and then the library. $20,000 to hire the production company and do the video editing. All right, well, let's see. Um, first of all, that's obviously in the historic category. There's a definition for this. A historic resource is a building, structure, vessel, real property, document, or artifact. Those are the only six things that are available for funding in the historic category. So, are you acquiring, when you do this oral history project, are you acquiring a historic building, structure, vessel, real property, document, or artifact? Yes. Are you buying that? No. No, you're not. Um, are you preserving it, meaning protect it from injury or harm through physical work? You're doing any physical work to a building structure, vessel, real property, document, artifact to preserve it. You are not. And you're also not rehabilitating one of those six items. Not eligible for funding. In fact, the box where it really belongs is create. You're making a video production, a new video production. It's about history, but it's a new video production. And this one applies too. It's something that definitely supports the historic preservation category, but support is not available in any category except housing. So that's kind of the way you use the chart. Um, and it's really important to match the chart with the line items in a budget that you receive. Um, and the budgets, you know, they're not, projects aren't bid at the time they're getting to you. So the budgets are estimates, you know, and they will change and you, you understand that. But you do need to see a budget. You do need to know what people are spending the money on. A lot of times people make the mistake in the applications of describing the project, but don't really get down to what is actually the money gonna be spent on. And that's the critical part for you folks to determine eligibility is what will the CPA money be buying in this project? Um, you know, you can see a, a budget to rehab this historic building. Um, I don't know if this is a historic building, let's say it is. Um, you know, and until you look through the budget and you see that they have actually you know, ask for money for furniture and big screen TV at the front door, you know, listing all the departments. Well, that's not historic preservation, you know, of the building. Uh, that's F, what they call FF&E, furniture, fixtures, and equipment. Um, but until you look through the budget, you don't know that until you see the different line items. So, so um, I could spend all night on this, but we're already <laughs> over time. So, but any questions on the allowable uses chart? Yes, sir. And by the way, uh, the meeting is essentially for you. So okay. as long as you want to keep going, um, I'm going to stay. I think I have four more slides, I think. Yeah, so. please don't, uh, don't um, And then we can just spend some time talking about, about White Cliff. So to, um, to um, further um, make the point, the chart is just about the eligibility. And what I see sometimes is folks spend a long time arguing about the eligibility, you know, because it's not easy. And, and maybe you even have to ask town council to opine because they're the final decision maker. Or maybe you want to get our opinion on it. We're happy to give it. Um, but in the end, it's decided, yes, it's eligible for funding. If you argue about it for a while, there's this, there's this feeling at the end of that process that we're going to do it. You know, like we argued all for all this long time about whether it's eligible. It's eligible. And now there's, a, you know, there's an expectation. Yeah, you're going to do it. Well, no. That's just the first process, right? 
Once it's eligible, now you gotta talk about whether it makes sense, right? And the CPC's job is not to just pass along eligible applications. We actually get that question from a lot of CPCs. You know, do we have to pass along an application to town meeting just because it's eligible? And we're like, no, they wouldn't need a CPC. I mean, they would have just had, the law would have been written like, your town attorney shall look at all applications and eligible ones shall be placed on the war in a town meeting. You know, we have a CPC and a really diverse CPC just for that whole process of due diligence. So, you know, you want to ask yourself, does it fit your CPA plan that hopefully you have? Um, how does it compare to other applications that cycle? How many times have you got an application and you read it and it's just not, it's just not ready for prime time. It's an idea, but it's not really fully fleshed out or it's way ahead of itself, um, you know. Um, and, um, you know, how many times you get an application, you know, and it's easy to, CPA's the easy money, frankly, you know, applying for state grants, poor Lori, that, you know, that's, that's her job and it's not easy, you know, or, or having bake sales or, you know, sending out fundraising letters, uh, having events, those are really hard, you know? And so a lot of times people just throw the application into the CPC and um, not really do the, the hard work to also, you know, come up with some matching funds. So these are all the things um, that you would, of course, consider. And uh, I know you're, you guys are a pretty thoughtful CPC and I'll, I'll bet this is um, how you do your, your process. Um, so we talked about this a little bit, we got ahead of ourselves, but um, you know, every project has to have public benefit. If it's on a public asset, it's automatic. But if it's on a private asset, you really need to have a conversation at the CPC of how we're protecting the public benefit. Maybe we're asking for a preservation restriction on that private asset. Uh, that's automatically to the public benefit. If you get a preservation restriction back, the town now owns that preservation restriction. It's a real property interest, um, and that is clearly to the public benefit. But there are other ways to guarantee uh, public benefit. You know, access, um, clawback agreements. Um, there's a lot of different ways, and um, you need to have a discussion about that every time and, and make sure that you've been thoughtful about this private application having public benefit that's what, as we discussed, what the anti-aid amendment is, is all about. Um, all right, so let's talk about, um, dig into a few of these categories. I think I have one slide on a couple of each of these categories. Um, we are seeing a tremendous amount of pressure right now um, from housing organizations, the state, um, advocacy groups on CPA for housing. Um, you know, it is the number one crisis in our state right now, clearly. And um, a lot of CPA communities do great job with housing, but very honestly, a lot of other communities don't. Um, I live in one that does a terrible job addressing our housing needs. Um, and um, you know, I stood in front of town meeting six times when I was chair with housing projects, and I went 0 for six. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's it's tough because every CPA project has to go and get approval at town meeting, and housing can be very controversial and difficult. Um, but we're now seeing, um, you know, a collision of the state um, and really wanting to get communities more involved with housing. There was this MBTA communities law, if you're really into the wonkiness of, of policy planning, Lori knows all about that. And there's more coming um, and more pressure coming for communities to, you know, get on board with making sure we have adequate housing. So. I do think one of the things that keeps us up at night is that we're gonna see some policies um, um, submitted by 
special interest groups. The realtors are very interested in changing CPA to benefit their category. Um, and so we're, we're sort of just setting the groundwork for folks to really give consideration and think through and be proactive on housing. You know, you see this thing all the time in the big trade, uh, big uh, industries, you know, where the feds, you know, threaten to regulate them further if they don't get their act together and then they form a trade association among all the companies and kind of put some consumer friendly policies in place. It's kind of like that. Um, but it is something we're really concerned about right now. Um, and we're spending a lot of time. And I think, I think we're going to be um, engaging a lot of folks in that conversation of maybe how we can make some changes to CPA to make it more equitable for everyone. And they're gonna be tough decisions. They're gonna be you know, uh, tough issues. You know, our, our basic position is that CPA is a local program and communities should be able to do what they want with their local money, especially if 80% of the money is coming from the local surcharge and only 20% is coming from the state match. But, um, you know, I will tell you that, that, you know, that feeling is not universally shared among, among others. So we think, uh, you know, a carrot approach is a lot better than a stick approach, especially with CPA, because if there's a stick approach on CPA, as you, someone mentioned, um, communities can lower their surcharge or they can exit the program. You know, this is not a, this is not a guaranteed, um, you know, funding source, um, you know, and so you hit a, a CPA community with a stick too many times, they'll say, what do we need CPA anymore for? So it's a, it's an emerging issue. Yeah, Todd. I would imagine that particularly in CPA communities have been adopted are generally wealthier communities and they're using that money to buy open space to basically pull up the pull up the gates and you know remove land from the map that could be developed for anything else. That would seem to be a criticism that might be coming your way. Yeah, that was actually a criticism from the very beginning um, of CPA. Um, but I think it's a little bit of a false criticism. Um, the whole purpose of CPA, the whole idea of CPA, and the reason why these four categories were combined, and the reason why the CPC is this diverse collection of people <laughs> representing all these categories, is to make this work for the whole town as a quality of life issue. So the idea of CPA is you have money to protect the land that really should be protected. And you have money to build the housing where it should be built. You know, And it actually says in the law, you know, community housing shall be built wherever possible on previously developed sites. So it's not really an, an either or. It's, you know, it's let's protect the land that's really environmentally sensitive. I took a back road here. I have never been down um, Robin, Robin Street. Robin Hill Road. What's that? Robin Hill Road. Yes. In Marlboro. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Marlboro and it comes through and there's yeah. like a reservoir there and there's yeah. fields there. It's what a what a fantastic road. There was all sorts of open space and farms and all interesting things. You know, that's not a great place for affordable housing, right? It looked like it was very, like there's a reservoir back there and, and water features and wetlands and farmland. Um, but, you know, right along Route 20, you know, would probably be a great place for affordable housing. So. It is a it is an argument we see a and lot. I'm not even talking about affordable housing. I'm just talking about housing. Yeah, housing in general. I mean, you can Harvard can make itself more like Harvard every day by buying open space. Right. Yep. Um, and and you know you hopefully you hope that communities are thinking the way the legislature was when they created CPA, which is you got to serve both categories and protect the land that should be protected and put the housing where the housing should be. 
And that's the way the state's thinking with this MBTA law. They're trying to get communities to put the housing where the housing belongs. So. Yeah. I think we, what we've seen is that even when we have a very, we have a very good and active uh, housing association that we work with, um, the money, it's very expensive to develop housing. So you take a million dollars and that buy, you go, oh my God, that buys us, you know, six units, right. you know? If or, that. Yeah, or four units, right? Yeah. And a you know, million dollars might buy 20 acres of, of a space, you know, of, of an open, open area because the, uh, the person wants to sell it and they want to preserve it and things like that. So there, it's disproportionate. Even though you can spend a lot of money on it, you're not going to, it's not going to, it doesn't seem to create the same kind of, say, oh, wow, we just spent all that money and we made three units of housing. Right. And that's been our story here, even with a, a group that's been very active and, um, and working with uh, Habitat and things like that to maximize, you know, to maximize the return on the investment. Right. You have that great, is that Rick Leaf's organization? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Rick I mean, they've done really tremendous work, but, you know, it's a lot of money for a few amount of units. I mean, um, that is one way to do it, um, you know, and that, that has great value because it's local people doing local projects, right? But um, along with that, you know, CPA is a lot of times used as, as seed money, you know, as the first money in. If a developer, even a for-profit developer or a non-profit developer, if they can have as the very first funding source for their project a positive vote of, you know, not a huge amount of money, because you don't have a huge amount of money, but $250,000 of CPA money, and that goes to town meeting, and town meeting says, we like this project, that is gold to a housing organization. They take that to the state. It, melts doors in terms of raising other funding is the town wants this town meeting voted to put their own town money from cpa in this project and they passed at a town meeting that makes it so much easier for them to get other funding so now your your money's being really used to leverage other money so they both have value right the local organizations developing 100 percent affordable with you know local um, organizations and putting a little bit of money into a larger project. And it may not all be affordable, right? Your 250 might only be, you know, getting, um, you know, a certain amount of units there. But as Todd said, we need housing. We need every type of housing in Massachusetts. So those are a couple different strategies that communities use. All right. Um, <coughs> there's just a couple more slides left. Just some things about outdoor recreation. We do still get questions, and you know, can we fix up an indoor basketball court or an indoor ice rink? But um, CPA is for outdoor recreation only. Um, you can never, in any category of CPA, do any maintenance or ongoing operating <laughs> expenses. Um, but there probably the recreation category probably has more restrictions than any because there's not really not a lot of restrictions in CPA. But it does say. You know, no stadiums, as I said, no indoor recreation facilities. There was a lawsuit, not only on um, religious institutions, but Norwell lost a lawsuit on sidewalks um, along roads. That's not allowed with CPA funds because that's not dedicated recreation land. Um, certainly, the sidewalks within a park is fine. 
Um, and then um, artificial turf was also a change that the legislature made in, in 2012. You go back to indoor recreation? I'm not sure I knew that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, it's for outdoor recreation only. Wasn't there an application yeah. for the basketball court years and years ago? That's not why I failed. It, no. it, right? what, was the, what was the main reason? Because it, yeah, it hadn't figured it out yet. Yeah, we just, you know, the, the, the budget was wrong. It, we didn't have enough money yet, but we... we I remember that project. But then, here's uh, the deal no. on that one, though. Is this a historic building? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that probably... Is that how we... Yeah. Through, like, I mean, you know, yeah. a historic building <laughs> has offices in it. It has meeting rooms in it. It has. It might have a basketball court. It has bathrooms. It has a boiler. They're, your money is going... It doesn't really care about what the building is being used for. It's the historic fabric of the building. So Very well, thank you. Yeah, so I think you were fine there. I remember that project, actually. I um, never did it, but... Yeah, and I think that's one of the only times I've ever seen an okay indoor recreation project okay. because... And that goes back to the... John, that's a great thing. Sorry to go back here, but that goes back to the chart. Um, you know, I, I see people all the time. These four categories seem very distinct and very clear, but you really have to know what you're talking about, right? And the first thing you need to do and it happens a lot between this category and this category, is what category are we talking about? Like, mm -hmm. what is this land, right? Um, you couldn't have figured out that project unless you knew this was a historic, if you were considering it in this category, you were, you were doing something illegal. But if you were considering it right here, this was the box for that project, not this. Um, matter of fact, back then, might have been before 2012, I'd have said you couldn't even rehabilitate recreation, even outdoor recreation, but now you can't. Yeah, that was it. Um, so that's, that's a great example on this chart, is I see so many times people struggle to not really think through what the category is. Um, and you can't go anywhere without first doing that. Um, all right, um, and now we're on to the last, uh, the heading to the White Cliffs discussion, if you want to talk about that. Um, so we actually talked about this, the definition of historic preservation. Um, and furthermore, if it's one of those six things, it also has to be one of those six things on the state register, or if it's not on the register of the local historic <coughs> Do you do that? Do you send things if they haven't had CPA funding before to the historic commission to get a vote from them? Typically we're getting, uh, you know, the norm was involved in it for quite some time, but typically we're getting a, a you know, a recommendation. Or so far it's been, those properties that in town are universally accepted as our historic resources. Yeah. Is that fair to say, Norm? Yes, you're right, John. Um, <coughs> all right. So, um, Maury. <laughs> Couldn't have found a better picture. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, Chase, our communication director, did this presentation. And I said, Chase, I need one blank slide at the end. Um, you know, because Lori had asked me to delve into some issues, which I never got to. Um, bad about that, um, about White Cliffs. Um, maybe it was my subconscious not wanting me to. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I said, can you, if you can find a picture of White Cliffs online, that would be awesome. So I, I actually have not seen this till right now. <laughs> um, not the prettiest one, yeah, actually. No. Um, but it is, it is accurate, though. Isn't it? Um, all right, so the, the question that had been asked was, you know, and, and it may still be on the table. I know, you know, things have been a roller coaster with White Cliffs, but, you know, at some point it came up and it probably will come up again is, you know, can we sell something when we bought it with CPA funds? And the answer is yes. You can always sell any asset, even conservation land that you acquire with CPA money. But 
CPA requires a deed restriction when you buy something. So the, the deed restriction should be put in place and then the property would be sold as restricted to that category. So if you bought a piece of conservation land and a land trust wanted to buy it from you or a farmer wanted to buy it from you, you could sell that to them. The money goes back into the CPA fund and the restriction goes with that land and it's still restricted to that category. Now here we have a situation where the restriction was never done on, on white clips, which was, you know, still continues to be an oversight, but there's much bigger fish to fry and I, I get it. Um, you know, you're not the only community that hasn't, you know, filed those restrictions um, in a timely fashion, even though they're required. Um, so that really is why this was a significant question is, well, what do you do if the restriction was never done, right? And so DOR finally came out in their new IGR a few years ago um, with their opinion on this, which, which we agree with, um, which is if you didn't do the restriction, that doesn't absolve you of the fact the law said that you should have done the restriction. So um, there is a law in Massachusetts called Chapter 184, Sections 31 to 33 deal with um, restrictions. And Section 32 specifically talks about how you extinguish a restriction. So there are times, there, it's rare, but there are times where you know the public purpose of that restriction are no longer valid and there's a procedure in place to get that restriction removed. It's pretty complicated on open space or recreation land because we have something called Article 97, which is another in amendment to our state's constitution, um, which we won't get into here. But for historic preservation, basically what the what the DOR is saying and we would agree with is you have to pretend the restriction existed because you were supposed to do the restriction. You agreed to do the restriction when you bought it with CPA money. So therefore, you have to follow the same procedure as someone else who was getting a restriction released. Um, and it's a little easier for historic properties to get that done than it is for open space and recreation properties. You need approval by Mass Historic. And I think there's some local procedural votes too. I will tell you that chapter 183, 182 section 30, sector 184 section 32 is a piece of prose that only a lawyer could love. Um, I don't. I don't. Yeah, it's, uh, it's dense and it's hard to understand and I don't pretend to be an expert on it, but it also does say that, that the property has to be sold at market value. CPA grants an exemption from the state's procurement laws when you buy land you know, when you want to buy White Cliffs, you don't have to put an ad in the central register saying, we want to buy an oversized, <laughs> you know, rundown, former historic uh, function facility somewhere in the town of Northboro. Everyone who has one, put in your bid and we'll accept the lowest offer. You don't have to do that. When you want to buy a CPA asset, you usually want to buy that asset, that piece of conservation land, that historic building. So it exempts you from the state's procurement laws when you buy. It does not exempt you from the state's procurement laws when you sell, which is why you had to do that, you know, when you were considering uh, disposing of it to, to Metro West. That's why you did the RFP. That is the proper way to, to do that. Um, but um, there are some, for housing purposes, there are some ways that you don't have to sell it at market value. There's another state law that allows you to reduce the price if it's going to be used for housing. Uh, but I don't think that's true for, for uh, historic property. And then that money has to go back to CPA. That's section six of CPA says that all proceeds from the sale of assets acquired with CPA funds go back to the, the program. Todd. 
I always wondered, and maybe you've seen this, although maybe based on this you haven't, is that if you just kind of say, oh, shucks, this isn't going to work, you could go back to the legislature, get a special act approved that basically says this property no longer subject, it's out of the program, right? And do it that way. Um, for a um, for recreation or conservation land, that is exactly what you have to do. You have to get a, a town meeting vote um, to change the use on that land, and then you have to get a two third. Have to bill has to be filed, and you need to get a two thirds vote on a special act of the legislature. But now, for conservation and recreation land, the state just strengthened that law with the Public Lands Protection Act in January 2022. And now, not only do you need the two-thirds vote of the town meeting and the legislature to sell that, you also have to go to EEA, get their approval, show an alternatives analysis that this is absolutely what you have to do, and then you have to replace that land two to one elsewhere in town with other conservation <coughs> <laughs> or recreation land. That was a policy of EEA, and in uh, January of 2022, it was codified in law, and it's co was called the Public Lands Protection Act. Um, there are dozens and dozens of special acts every year to remove parks and open space and conservation land from protected status, and it was really getting a little out of hand. Um, this is a historic structure. Yes, this is different. This is, I think, I don't think you need a special act. I just think you need to go through MHC. I just wonder if uh, MHC can be difficult to uh, work with, and I'm just wondering whether a special act might be easier. Yeah, I don't think that will work because of what section Section 32 doesn't mention a special act as a way, as a possibility. I so think, I think that, again, not thought this all the way through, but I think a special right. act allows you to get around all the other stuff. Yeah. But will they pass that special act, you know, when it's... That's why we pay our legislators. Yeah, clearly not what they intended when they <laughs> created Chapter 184, Section 32, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, it's a good question, and I wish you luck with that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, does that help, Lori? It sure does. Yeah. yeah thank yeah. you. So it doesn't have to be approved by town meeting, or it does? It does because the sale would have to exactly be anytime anytime you dispose of property yeah. that has to go to town meeting, um, yep. and that's um, uh, and then you'd also have to follow the procurement laws too, mm -hmm. as well. Yep. But though I think those are those are pretty well understood for any asset the town sells, right? Doesn't matter if it's CPA or not. The the big the big revelation here was, you know, you can't sell it unrestricted, um, and just say we never did the restriction, so it's unrestricted, and we're just going to sell it. You have to go through the process as if it had a restriction and get that release, which ma it makes sense, right? You shouldn't mm -hmm. you shouldn't be rewarded for not having done what you should have done, right? right. You, you should and follow the same I don't think it was ever intended to, no, to no. not put a restriction on it yes. or sell it unrestricted. You know, I mean, obviously, the reason why you've invested all this money and time into it is because you value the historic structure as a town. So, but to be clear, the Mass Historic Commission is the only body that needs to release it? That's what it says in section 32. Mm. Yeah, so yep. If it's housing, it would be DHCD. If it's open space, it would be EEA. Recreation land would be EEA. Agriculture would be, I think it says, Department of Agricultural Services. There's a different one for watershed land, I think, or something. But for um, historic, it says MHC, mm. um, which is um, 
which is uh, under Secretary Gavin's office and is you know, um, a very process-oriented state agency. You, you had, I read in your, in your description of all the dealings with MAC just to get them to declare it historically significant years and years ago. That was a, quite a process. Yeah, there, there were two attributes that are still not clear in my head. There's one part that has to do with uh, putting it on the National Register, which seems to have different requirements than putting it in on the registry. So I'm to appreciate those differences. And uh, so we got it to the point where we could, the MHC said we could put a preservation restriction on it. Um, it's not clear to me regarding the National Register status. Right. Uh, because they actually want different things. Yeah, and the National <coughs> Register really doesn't give you any protection for the building. <coughs> no, no, but the, the issue really comes if, if a nonprofit took over or uh, it's, it has the tax credit benefits. Yes. Which were clearly Metro West clearly identified that on this property is almost two million dollars. Right. So and if you don't get the National Register, it's tough if to you do don't it. get the tax credit. Yeah. So that's, a, that's kind of just something you need to know about. Right. So there's not any other immediate questions. I wanted to turn the, turn the <laughs> conversation around. Wearing the same sweater as I was wearing. That was in Phillipson. I got caught. I had <laughs> Different pants, though. <laughs> so back to White Cliffs. Um, yes. Let's, let's say our mindset is in the other camp that we're not going to sell. Okay. Um, I personally want to clarify again what work can be done that qualifies. So I'm back to the chart, which you happen to be pointing at anyway. Yep. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we already acquired it, so we have, we can preserve and we can rehabilitate and restore. Uh, you know, these things seem obvious, but yeah. um, there's so many aspects of White Cliffs, if it, if it was to ever be rebuilt enough to occupy, that are not fixing things that are necessarily part of its historic character but it, they're all part of a building. Yes. So where where yeah. would we differentiate if the CPC was presented an application for yeah. certain things? You've got tremendous leeway. Um, I don't have a visual of the definition of the word rehabilitation, but that would be a good one to look at in section two of CPA. And because this is a common question, like it needs an HVAC system, it needs a complete new electrical system, it needs new boiler, we're talking remediation no. is the key word here. No, not remediation, rehabilitation. That's I'm, the word. I'm talking about white cliffs. Oh, um, okay. So the definition of rehabilitation says, you know, to anything that, you know, brings the building back to its, you know, former historic glory, including any upgrades to any code work whatsoever. So modern HVAC codes, modern electrical codes, modern ADA codes, mm -hmm. um, remediation of asbestos and lead paint, mm -hmm. all those things are eligible on a historic structure. The, the really the only things that aren't um, are things that are not attached to the building, right? So furniture, you know, um, things like furniture fixtures and equipment are not eligible. 
to follow that, uh, parts of Whitefoot's property are uh, additions that were not. Yeah, can you use CPA funds to rip them down? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so that uh, I was going to address that next because that's that's a difficult one. Um, but I I think you can make the case. Yes, um, I you know I think that you would have to have you know all that documentation that Norm did you know and historic preservation consultants and you know officially saying this is not historic. This would benefit the building from a historic perspective to be removed. I think if you have that evidence, you know, CPA doesn't have regulations, so there's nowhere in the act where it's going to, where you're going to find that it says you can't use CPA money for that. Now, on the other hand, if I'm going to demolish the piece that's the addition, you know, it's not part of the original building, um, I'm not rehabilitating or restoring it. Well, you have to button up the building after. Right. And once you remove the additions, the you have to historically, in a historically appropriate way, right. mm -hmm. return the original uh, exterior, the structure, right. to the exterior. Yep. yep. So could that yeah, all qualify? Though? Yeah, I would. I would. I think it would. Um, I think that is, you know, um, and actually says this might help. Actually, it actually says rehabilitation or restoration. And there's no definition of restoration in CPA, but there is an officially um, recognized historic definition of restoration, which is to return a building to what it was at a certain period in its life. So it does say that both are eligible for CPA money, rehabilitation and restoration. Does it work? Can we return it to when somebody else owned it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Very good. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Uh, there's no definition of restoration. So I think actually that would be the a avenue for this. We don't see it that much, but DOR actually gave an example in their IGR of restoration. Of you have, um, you know, normal ordinary painting, you know, that you're doing every 10 years is maintenance, right? But they gave an example that said if you have a building that's at some point someone painted purple, and you know that for 200 years that building was white and you have documented evidence, restoring it to its original color is restoration and that would qualify for CPA funding. So I think that's the angle you would take here, is to use restoration, actually, which, which luckily, to your benefit, does not have a definition, so it's what <laughs> you guys decided is. Um, but in the general, in the, in the, am I correct about, would you agree with that, that in the, in the historic pressure borough, preservation rule, <coughs> restoration does have a definition, which is to bring it back to a certain point in its history. Right, mm -hmm. and the, the target has always been to bring it back to the original mansion. I think, you're, I think you're absolutely fine there. Now, the question is, once you take that off, you know, the work to bring it back to what it looked like would be fine, but if you also, for your convenience, wanted to add onto the building, um, like a modern kitchen or something, that would not be something mm -hmm. that would be eligible for CPA funds. And that, frankly, was one of the nice things about the housing proposal, because housing, you can build new stuff. So you kind of got the best of both worlds. You have to use that chart to make sure you're matching the expense, right? So the expense of taking it off, taking off the porch and you know restoring it back to what it looked like would be historic restoration down in that box. But the, you know, the new housing units would be over in the housing box under create. Right? So that's how you use that chart. Um, and that was the nice thing about you know, a proposal like that. 
for the for this property is that you can restore the historic and build the new, and you can use CPA money and, and all, for all of it. Um, which any other use, you know, you would not be able to add on to the to the building. The one exception is if you absolutely have to add on for ADA accessibility and doing something interior would ruin some of the historic features of the building, then you could have an addition, just have the stairwell or the elevator mm -hmm. or something like that. So um, Hamilton Town Hall, it's the type of town hall, I don't know if you've ever been to, Prov a lot of people have been to Provincetown Town Hall, you walk in and there's these matching historic circular staircases, you know, these grand staircases. Provincetown ones are spectacular. The, the two in, in Hamilton Town Hall aren't quite as spectacular, but that's the defining feature of that building when you walk in is these two matching staircases. To make it handicapped accessible, the selectmen wanted to blow out one of the staircases and put the elevator in there. And the CPC said, no, that's a defining historic feature, you can't do that. And the selectmen said, well, the only other way is to build an addition out back. And that's you know a lot more money. And the CPC said, let's build the addition and use CPA money because if if the only way to do it is going to define it hurt some defining historic features, then you could put the elevator outside because you're actually preserving those historic features. So that's really the only addition on a historic one would be for those code those code issues um, like ADA accessibility. So, I mean you. You've got a lot more tasks that would be just fine there than you have CPA money. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that shouldn't right be your, that shouldn't be a worry, I don't think. Okay. Um, even with the bond, you know, it's still more than you have. Right? There's going to be other other solutions. That These are the big time. questions. Yes. Yeah. That was really helpful. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, Board, open it up. Questions on anything else to Stuart? Please uh, speak up. I think you touched on it earlier. I'm curious on uh, ADA compliance. Yeah. There was a thing said no sidewalks allowed. Yes. But most of the ADA compliant by statute, you need certain pitch sidewalks and ramps. And I contend somewhat it should be a municipality. They should make everything ADA compliant. But a lot of our proposals we get they almost seem to throw it in as a sales feature for us. Oh, we're going to make it ADA compliant. Right. Uh, where's the onus? Is that on the municipality or is that up to us to try and make every project ADA compliant? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not an ADA expert by any means. Um, and every town usually has an ADA coordinator um, who is responsible for that. Um, I mean, there are a lot of municipal projects most municipal projects where if you exceed a certain threshold of the value of the building, you have to bring it completely up to ADA code. So <coughs> if you were gonna rehab this building and you spent more, I think it's 30% of assessed value, you have to bring the whole building up to, to accessibility standards. There are different accessibility standards for playground reduce, mm -hmm. right? So there are different categories that of other laws that you have to adhere to with, with you know, that aren't in the CPA legislation, but they would apply to any any CPA project. I think, John, didn't we have one actually for a church to right for an exterior ramp? Yeah, we did it at the first yeah. parish church, oh, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. yeah. And now, we get, mm -hmm. see, now that may be, that one may be a little questionable, not because, I mean, an exterior 
um, ramp for any historic building would be fine. But in the religious category, you know, is it being used by the public or is it being used by the members of the church? You know, so that's a, that's a that's a tricky one that you can church argue either way. I remember that one very well. And the, the justification was brought in because they, they were planning to continue to use that building for public concerts and the like. Right. So right. That, that was the logic written in the... And, and usually churches are almost always used for lots of community activities. Mm -hmm. the, the question is, how do you guarantee that benefit going forward, right? Because, you know, someone trips That's and true. falls and liability insurance triples and all of a sudden they say we can't rent it out we can't let the community use this building anymore and you've just invested in that in that handicap ramp so these are you know a lot of times that can be handled with a you know a grant agreement with a clawback clause that says if you ever stop having public buildings you owe us the money back or something like that but we proved that long before acting anyway so. yeah ADA generally um, you know, especially on historic buildings, is is allowed. Um, you know, the trick on historic buildings is how do you do the ADA upgrades and not ruin the historic features? Mm -hmm. And um, you know, uh, there is something in Boston called the Architectural Access Board, mm -hmm. and you can apply for waivers. You know, um, like we had a Grange building and that we used a million dollars of CPA money in my town to fix up, and they had these beautiful wooden, you know, handrails, beautiful as they went down but they were, you know, like two inches, you know, too high or too low or something like that. Um, and so they got a, a waiver to leave those, but then add a second handrail mm -hmm. for handicap accessibility at the proper height, but they left the beautiful wooden ones as well. Um, but they had to get a waiver from the Architectural Access Board for that. So it's, it's difficult on historic buildings, but it can be done. And it's usually required if you're spending more than a certain amount of the assessed value of the building. Um, you know, a little less clear, I don't think there are too many regulations on making parks accessible. You know, there's some playground regulations. The dog park, we're, we're doing a dog park project and we had to make it accessible. You did, okay. And the same with playgrounds. Yeah, yeah, playgrounds, I know there's lots of regulations on that. And a lot of CPA money spent to make wonderful ADA accessible playgrounds. We just did. Yeah, great. Usually has to do with the surface, making it a, quite a bit, yeah. A, a great, the port yeah, place great too, that was, yeah. Did they use a four in place rubber? That, that rubberized, mm -hmm. yeah, that's awesome stuff. The project was sort of uh, expedited because of a claim made against the town. Right, they had to do and, something. Uh, you know, but fortunately, uh, we had the, the ability and uh, it turned out to be a great, you know, great asset to the park. It's much nicer than it was, even though it was a good park before. Yeah, those four in place things are fan they're fantastic services, but they're really expensive. <laughs> Everything's expensive in the town. Yeah. <laughs> Even the dog park, it's over five hundred grand. Wow. <laughs> and it's not fancy. Yeah. Right. Well, look, most handicapped dog. Just a little dog. <laughs> My favorite um, expensive <laughs> municipal project story was when we install a new HVA system in our historic uh, community center, which is our senior center. Um, and I was chair of the CPC and I was meeting with the contractor and the um, uh, council on aging director. And we had the proposal in front of us and we were talking about the project and, and uh, the Pam, the 
senior citizens director said, you did, um, you did put in the prevailing wage and the um, you know, procurement, proper procurement in this to the, to the vendor. And he was like, oh, oh, you're right. This is a public building. He goes, do you have that proposal? Mm -hmm. ah. And he takes the piece of paper from Pam and he takes and crosses out the 20,000. <laughs> And handwrites on there forty thousand. Hands it back to it. <laughs> so, because it was in a public building, it was going to cost twice as much wow. as you could do it in your house. And we were, Pam and I were like, he goes, "Oh yeah, I forgot it was a public building. Yeah, that's that's the quote." He wrote it big too, like a sharp thousand, crossed out the. Any other questions for Stuart? Well, thank you very much for coming. Right. This was very, very useful. Thank you. Thank you. Send you this tomorrow morning, and then if anyone has any follow-up questions, let us know. That'd be great. Yeah. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. All right. It's a great help. Uh, I don't think it's the last time you'll hear from us, but <laughs> you've, uh, you've given us uh, much to work with. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Nice sweater. Yeah. <laughs> Does that go under historic now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, we'll, we'll let you shut down and we'll kind of keep going. We don't have much, much more business. But uh, it's interesting because some of your comments apply to the papers in front of us. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we are going to do a, a brief look at the applications we've received so far. And so we'll do that. Um, <coughs> the first on my file is uh, uh, from the, um, from Rick Leaf, who got mentioned today, and it's with regard to the Affordable Housing Reserve Fund. And uh, Rick is famous for his voluminous writings in his applications. So uh, the executive summary is that uh, he wants more money in the affordable reserve and he wants to reapprove the previously voted amounts as per our funding agreement. And so as he properly does every year, brings it back to the CPC to approve and onward to the select board to approve you know, previous amounts so that they are still available for the potential of new projects. That's a pretty straightforward application. I don't think uh, anyone have any questions on it. Number two in my pile is uh, from the Recreation Commission with regard to the Millican Middle School outdoor recreation courts, <laughs> tennis courts, basketball courts. And um, this seems consistent with projects we have approved in the past. And we have uh, previously approved projects at Millican, which have been very successful. So, quick look at applicability. It seems to be right up there, right? Speak up if anybody has any more knowledge on anything, okay? Do you want to wait till Stuart leaves? No. If we have a question, he's still here. We'll just claw him back in. Didn't we'll make we do, him adjunct didn't, member. Didn't we do the basketball courts? Hmm. Uh, do, do, yeah. Outside. 
No, no, I know, but the ones that they're asking for the money, wasn't that courts? Oh, no, 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 it was, it was uh, the elementary schools, wasn't it? Was, uh, yeah, mostly elementary schools. Well, no, to your point, some of it was there. So yes, we're redoing some it. Was in the, in the, middle the middle school. And I, had, I actually coincidentally talked to somebody on the basketball board mm -hmm. about this. I didn't even know we had this application, but he had said that the middle school during the pandemic had stored like containers on the courts that ruined the surface. Oh, really? But that's a question for. Okay. Stored we'll containers? We'll uh, some sort of, I don't know. I'll track down more information. Anti, <laughs> antivirals or something. That's worth looking at the detail. Um, the third one I have is interesting. Um, it's an application for an historic marker to replace the same historic marker. And uh, Thank you very much again. So I think we'll discuss this further at the next meeting, but with regard to the more thorough explanation of applicable uses, I don't think the signs ever applied. No, because it's not a document. We're not preserving it. We were, in, in each case, we are, you know, trying to enhance the historical asset. And we felt that we had, that we had vetted it, you know, along those lines. I'm trying to remember, because we've been doing these for We can't create a new thing, right? Yeah. The sign is in, it, in itself is not the historic research. Correct. Uh, but my recollection is somewhere I remember reading that it had to do with education. And, and I'd have to go back and see that it was to educate the population on some of these historic sites. Has Stuart left the building yet? Got <laughs> we could have as soon as he got out. As soon as he heard, he might be dragged back in. quickly. In some cases, there was strictly they are strictly that. In other cases, if you look at what we were doing in the cemeteries, where all this work that we've been investing in the cemeteries, putting up the signs in the cemeteries, really fit the overall cemetery project. That's true. But again, my recollection is somewhere there's a t an angle of education, and that's the purpose. So take the cemetery case, for instance. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the Brigham, Brigham Street. Yeah. You're, you're restoring it, you're rehabilitating the burial ground. The sign is part of that. I think that's clear. Uh, at Howard Street, you know, we've, we've rehabilitated certain aspects of it. The signs are part of that, so I, I think that applies. Uh, but when we look at this particular marker, that's simply educating with regard to the aqueduct bridge. Uh, I thought it wouldn't be great to replace it. It seems like it maybe was not applicable in the first place. Yeah. So we have to give that some thought. Yeah. But then on the other hand, picking on that one sign, there is a program to look at the aqueduct in terms of a big picture, right? So maybe we should bundle it there. It's not that far off I didn't know that it was gone until I yeah. <laughs> saw your application. Uh, I noticed it was gone October 7th. I walked by and it was 
Are there any hints on where it went? Was it just run over? Or was it no, no, it was, it was unbolted. And they got 30 cents when they brought it Sorry? in. They probably got 30 cents when they brought it into uh, scrap. metal scrap. <laughs> it's probably yeah. hanging on somebody's wall. Yeah. They are expensive signs. They're expensive, but bringing material back. Oh, to, right, or, right. Yeah, yeah. That, that people think that it's brass or bronze and they're going to get a lot of money these days, but it's <coughs> not the truth. So we'll bring it up again, you know, next meeting. Sure. Right. Uh, I probably won't be here, but Bob will be here. Okay. Thank you. I know I'm. Uh, I speak to you as if you are <laughs> still in the commission. He is. Mr. He just uh, he is Commissioner he just Emeritus. He is. He just doesn't know it. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you for reconfirming, Leslie. Um, the next application that we got in is from the uh, sponsored by the Open Space Committee. Surprise, surprise. Uh, for conservation fund money. And uh, you've heard from us before. <sighs> hear from us again. And the last one that we've got in is the thickest. And it regards the First Parish Church restoration of the steeple and area which we talked about last year and we talked about tonight and so maybe do we take his advice and start right off and get some town council I was opinion say, we were just given very clear advice tonight yeah. that we should send it immediately over so we can send that over something we should start why not okay thank you um could you let council know we're meeting again uh First of December, and then maybe if they had any time to advise prior to that. Yep. Not required, but that'd be great. Peter, I kind of want to get your thoughts on this too, but I, do we want to have an opinion of town council? Because then we might be constrained by it. And I kind of think that, and Stewart had said that town council was like the ultimate arbiter of this stuff. I kind of think that the nine people here yeah. set the community standards as to what we think should be an allowable project and not town something, council something. who's going to give a conservative opinion yeah. to save money. Something less than an opinion. Some, right. Okay. I just throw that out there as giving opinions myself for a living. Sometimes there's things going on in the background that I get you. Um, what about if we pause on doing well, that until we, until we get more detail because tonight's meeting was not to right. study it no, I know but I also don't want to kick off that process unless we feel we need to okay that's fair thank you for the advice uh, why don't we uh, cancel the request for right now let's let's uh, get into it in more detail in just a second yeah. <coughs> we'll come armed with some precedent we've certainly we talked about it before without our concerns were not whether it was applicable based on Stuart talked about tonight, but more so that it was uh, well prepared. I thought. Didn't he speak to that level to those to the applicant? That didn't really seem to have the costs in line. They were looking for more detail, looking for other sources. Uh, I didn't think it was really well, uh, not completely well justified yet, and we were on a mindset to sort of 
save our save our uh, resources for other things last year. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for the advice uh, from council. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Our own council. Thank you, councilors. <laughs> Any other uh, information on applications? Do we know of any that are coming in that people said, oh, we forgot? Anything from White Cliffs other than the debt? Well, I have reached out to an architect um, about the demolition and the buffering up of the building afterwards, uh, having to do with the 1970s addition. Um, and we're, we're supposed to have a more formal I asked the question about the um, administration funds because I don't have a quote or anything ready to go for this round. Um, there is an interest in applying to grant funds, um, but uh, obviously there needs to be funding for the architectural services in order to be eligible to apply for the grant funds um, because they require quotes. This would be the architectural services just for the demo. Architectural services for the demo and the buttoning up the building in a historically appropriate manner. Well, I feel like the takeaway from Stuart um, reiterating the applicability of the administrative fund is that <clears throat> if an application was submitted <coughs> demolishing the addition and buttoning up the building in a historic fashion, then the CPC can determine if we need outside resources to, uh, to advise on the costs involved or to, to uh, uh, verify the application or to <coughs> add information to the application. Then I think we'd be in a position where it would apply, not the other way around. Would the CPC expect a cost estimate for the demolition work? Because well, I need the architectural right. services in order to come up with cost estimates. So now we come back to where uh, mm. in almost every other project of any similar nature that's come up in the last, let's say, 10 years, uh, town staff, through the administrator at the time, would advise this needs to be broken into a project whereby the first phase is we go get the real cost. Right. The second phase is we approve it. Mm -hmm. and perhaps it applies here, as much as there's a sense of urgency to do something, the right thing to do might be exactly that. But the project itself is, you know, it needs to be defined in some way and sponsored by somebody that says, we want to do this and that to White Cliffs, and then, you know, and so that's the application, and then right. we'd be bringing the, uh, it would be a project, you bring the project to town meeting, however the project is in phase one and phase two. Didn't he have on his slide that the administrative fund had no, like no project? It was it had no project, project basis, expenses, right? Yeah. So is it does it is it money spent to help this body make a decision, mm -hmm. or for the town to make a decision? No, it's this body, right? Yeah. Now, or if it's, it's like part of that project it should be in the project cost it shouldn't yep. be an administrative cost that's right. how I, I read yeah. that thing right. yeah. Yeah. so if it's a two-phase project and phase one is 
doing all this uh, uh, consulting work, then it's we're not using the admin fund anyway. Right. Is what you're saying. Right. Yeah, but we would. We've had those thoughts before. Where we thought we could use that. Correct. To define, better define things prior to. Right. Prior to it, or to uh, expedite. Yeah, the goal was always thinking that we could clarify the project and then move it forward that year. <coughs> but we were we were vetting applications where the cost estimates were not thorough enough, and eventually, uh, you know, kind of a collectively and with the town staff help, <coughs> we're coming to the conclusion that we've really got to get the right numbers before you go to town meeting, rather than going to town meeting with a number and then having to come back to town meeting and say we didn't have enough. <coughs> Or you know, we're trying to trying to fill in the gap a different way, and, and uh, so it's frustrating because you're waiting an extra year. But it's what it's what got the town common done, even though it took one or two extra years, and it's it's what got some other things done too. So there is uh, also the, uh, the Melican lighting, for instance, right? Wasn't that? Yeah. There is we a funding year to get the right cost. Yeah. Things like that. To do the exploratory work at Strand, so it's possible to have them fund. The services the architect and then come to you mm. and have you fund the actual demolition work so that's a that's another mm -hmm. possibility because that grant application is due in um, may or june mm. so the timing might work well to, to get the um, solid cost estimate from the demolition for the following cycle for the yeah. next cycle yeah for cpc but I mean, and this, I made this comment, I think the last time I was at a meeting, which is I'd kind of like to know what the plan is ultimately, rather than to just show people we're doing things for the sake of doing things. I hear you. <laughs> Valid. Valid point. This year, we are working on getting a facilitator, a community facilitator. I spoke with somebody today uh, who sounded really excited about the project and was very familiar with Life Sets personally. Um, so I should be getting a uh, quote and a scope report next week. And hopefully that will get us rolling in a good direction. Good. Good. Okay. Um, anything else on applications? Questions? We have one more piece of work, and that is approving the minutes. Anyone you know, can read them out loud if they'd like to. Otherwise, <laughs> I'll take a motion to approve. I'll make a motion to approve. Seconded. Andy, seconded by Andy. 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 I approve that we uh, accept the minutes from October 5th, 2023, as presented. Andy Dodge still second it? I, I will. Thank you very much. <laughs> he did. Uh, you know what's great about this meeting? We can just say all in favor. Aye, aye. aye. I wasn't here. So. I wasn't here. Thank you. So uh, we had, uh, of nine members, seven were here? Six. Were you here, Todd? I was I mean, not. Uh, Sean? Yes, I was here. Okay. Yeah, he was there. He's on the phone. I'm not listed uh, on the president. Leslie was on here. Well, I'm not. I'm, so Andy, <coughs> is, Andy, Andy listed as Clark, twice, twice attended, and I'm not. Andy is doppelganger. Oh, wow. 
Oh, no, why? Because I have it all on my phone and my computer. Double Andy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that's I think somebody. Right, so we were, John, we were Peter, Andy Clark. Exactly. I did Andy, it from my, two Andys. I did it from my, uh, Sean and Leslie was not, was there or not? Let me double check. Oh, you weren't there. No, I had to look at it. I'm pretty sure I was here. Double check. Uh, yeah, I think you were. Oh, Leslie, so six to zero, oh, three abstaining on the minutes. You got that right? Right. Okay. How about a motion to adjourn? So moved. Thank you. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Great meeting, people. Thank you so much. Thanks for setting that up.